afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name is Daniel Brooks Klein, but my friends call me Dan, so you can call me Dan. I'm joined today by Simon Erickson and Max Chasco. And of course, we're joined by all of you. If you ask us things in the chat, we will try to respond when possible, when appropriate. Simon, how was your Halloween? Dan, we successfully pulled off the Frozen theme here in Houston. Uh, we had Anna and we had Elsa represented. And I even pulled off Olaf. So two thumbs up from the Erickson household. Is Olaf the snowman who looks like a marshmallow? Is that him? That is correct. We put together a last-minute costume. Somehow it worked. I still don't know how. I have never seen Frozen, but I have been on the Frozen ride at Epcot. If there is anything that is not worth the wait, unless you are a 12-year-old girl, it is the Frozen ride at Epcot, which is basically the old ride from Norway with some, like, pictures of the Frozen people and maybe, like, a sign like and the new songs. <laughs> Max, what did you dress up for as Halloween as a uh, not person who doesn't have any children? Yeah, I didn't do that Halloween. I just ate a bunch of soup. But I did see pictures from Simon's house. I can confirm that he pulled it off. So, guys, on today's show, we're going to cover, as we always do, the news of the day, but with a long-term perspective. But it's going to be a little bit different because we're going to talk about the election. Uh, You may not know this, America, but it is a little bit rough out there. It is a very, very contentious election. Uh, And tomorrow, a lot of us have voted already. That's great. But tomorrow is an important day. You got to get to the polls. But Simon, let's get right to our top story. Uh, And that is what impact will the election have on the stock market? Simon, in the short term, it may not be great. But in the long term, historically, what happens? Well, Dan, at the 10,000-foot level, the uh, the economy follows a business cycle, and that doesn't really care who is in office or what the name of the president is. And Sam, if you could put up a graphic that we have here from our friends at Charts, we looked at kind of the long-term returns over, over the presidencies of, of both the Democrats and Republican candidates and presidents, and you kind of see that the economy is going to do what it's going to do, right? I mean, you see kind of the expansion during the internet boom of the 90s with the Democrat in office. Uh, following that, we had the dot-com bust. We had 9-11. We had the housing market collapse uh, under a Republican president. We then had a Democrat president that, that benefited from the the boom that cap came after that. And then, of course, we've got a Republican in office right now going through the COVID crisis. Thanks very much, Sam, for that. Um you know, this is something that really you can't make too many assumptions of what the economy is going to do based on the president who's in office because it doesn't have a political allegiance. So long term, don't overthink this. The economy is going to do uh, things that are different that are apolitical. So, Simon, let me throw out. Obviously, Tuesday could be volatile. We've seen, you know, stimulus didn't pass. The market went down. Now there's going to be this weird period where we're actually in the election. How do you tune it out? Like, I I know that my goal on Tuesday, because we don't have a show, is I'm not going to look at the market very much other than prepping for Wednesday's show. And this is what I do for a living. What do you recommend to the seven investors out there? Well, the election itself is not going to have a huge impact. And again, political party names don't impact the business the business and the economy itself. But what we do want to look at is kind of what are the potential outcomes it could have in terms of regulations, in terms of taxes, in terms of political agendas. That would be the things that might be more interesting for an investor. And so, you know, we do want to tune it out. We don't want to overly focus on things like this, but we also see general things like Trump is a fan of deregulation and lower taxes. We also see that Biden has some very... Um, aggressive plans for healthcare right now, and also possibly 
legalizing marijuana, right? So there's a lot of agendas that could be in place here, Dan. There's a lot of outcomes. I wouldn't overthink it, but I'll be looking closer to see what the policies say rather than what the name of the political party in office is. Max, I'm going to throw to you in a second. Biden's actually been pretty lukewarm on legalizing marijuana. It, he he tends to have that, you know, I hate to say older generation view of marijuana is scary and as opposed to the kind of younger politician view of like, hey, marijuana can matter. But Max, you cover the medical space, the biopharma space. Does it matter who gets in? Obviously, how we deal with the pandemic might be a little bit different. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't see it having too big of an effect. I mean, sure. Can it be volatile tomorrow or this week? Yeah, you know, and, you know, if there's a contested election, I live in Pennsylvania, right? So if it's close, you could bet there's going to be like lawsuits filed or some crazy stuff. Who knows? But is it going to matter in my portfolio six months from now or a year from now or 10 years from now? No, it, it has no bearing whatsoever. Uh, in healthcare specifically, I mean, I don't think this really matters that much. You know, there could be more regulation, maybe something around drug prices, but that's going to take time to to play out and, you know, in each Congress, congressional approval. So it's not going to happen just tomorrow or this week or, you know, six months from now. Yeah. And that's the other piece people aren't focusing on. This is also an election for Congress where, in theory, you could end up with a, a larger Democratic majority in the House. You could end up with the Senate flipping. You could end up with the Senate not flipping. So if we still have a split Congress, it doesn't fully matter who the president is when it comes to regulation. You can't get anything done if you don't control both houses, especially um, you know if you're not willing to work with the other side. I think Biden might be a little bit more willing to work with the other side. Whether they're willing to work with him uh, is an issue. Uh, but Simon, let me throw it to you. Is the biggest worry if we don't have an answer on Wednesday and this goes to the courts? Uh, again, I, I don't know if that's the biggest worry, in my opinion. That's something that I think we do look at. I, I don't think there's actually any worry for me as a stock market investor based on the outcome of this election, Dan. Uh, like we said, the economy is going to do what the economy is going to do. We're going to uh, have some results, whether it's Tuesday or later down the road on, on who the next president is going to be. And, um, you know, let's keep doing what we do as investors. Think long term. Simon, less worried about the possibility of a civil war than I am. I want to throw <laughs> one comment out there. Uh, Max Damon is asking, uh, can you please talk about a vaccine? And I'll throw out that I don't think a vaccine will have much of an impact on any of the stocks you cover, but it might be good for my space. It might be good for retail and travel. Your thoughts, Max? I disagree. I think the market is going to overreact when the first vaccine <laughs> or two or three are approved. But this is a very difficult logistical problem to solve. Um, it's not just about approving vaccines. That's not the end of the story by any means. We have to then distribute them and manufacture them to hundreds of millions of Americans. Uh, children can't actually get the first vaccine because we haven't run clinical trials to see how they are affecting children. So they won't have a vaccine until maybe the end of next year. Um, so we're looking at, you know, rolling this out might take a year, 18 months. So it's not as if, you know, we have a vaccine or three in March and everything returns to normal. It's going to take time. I mean, probably looking at 2022 until we get to like back to, you know, what we were in 2019, really. That is a depressing, depressing thought. <laughs> Joey Klein says, innovators will keep innovating and winners will keep winning regardless of who the president is. I just think of that Bill Murray led, it just doesn't matter chant from Meatballs. Yes. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think it does matter, um, but we're not going to get into the politics here. Make sure you vote. What, whatever you do, have a voice. Be part of it. Simon, any closing thoughts here? I mean, my favorite is the other comment that we see here from Doris and Renee Carell of just sit tight and ride it out. That's the greatest advice I can give to investors on this. Don't overthink things. This program is, of course, brought to you by the team at 7 Investing. 
Simon, that's a team you created. Why'd you put all of us together? <laughs> because you are all awesome, Dan. And I really wanted a team that would go out and find the best opportunities in the stock market every month. We didn't want to align ourselves with one type of investing. We didn't want to have multiple tiers of products. We just said we want one product that's $17 a month, $170 a year, Dan. And we're going to make it as awesome as we possibly could. And so that's what we did. Can you rank us in order of all? No, just 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 kidding. Uh, Max, how do people subscribe to get access to our picks? We're going to talk more about our picks later in the show. But Max, how do people subscribe to 7investing in order to get our 7 picks? Yeah, it's real easy. You just go to 7investing.com slash subscribe. Or if you just go to 7investing.com, it's real easy to find on the main menu. Then we have options for $17 a month or an annual option for $170 a year. So that works out to $14.17 a month. I did the math, Dan. <laughs> I could not do that math. You are way better at math than I am. <laughs> now it is time for what we're watching. In this segment, Simon and Max each picked one story. It could be anything. It could be anything they're following. It could be something from the NFL on Sunday. Probably not. It's usually going to be financial. But we don't promise that it always will be. Max, you want to talk about, will a market pullback reignite biotech mergers and acquisition? When values fall, you start to see mergers and acquisitions. And acquisitions. Max, what do you want to talk about here? Yeah, so due to a couple of different factors at the end of 2019 and uh, just how things started with some of these newer technologies and cell therapy, gene therapy, were really maturing. 2020 was expected to be this really crazy year for mergers and acquisitions. We had a lot of major pharmaceutical companies with flush with cash. They were expected to go on buying sprees and really bolster their pipelines with some of these newer technologies. Then, of course, the pandemic hit and everything came to a halt. The whole industry was really kind of navigating that uncertainty. And then, of course, as you guys know, uh, the stock market's been doing very well in 2020. So we see a lot of these development stage biopharmaceutical companies that have doubled or tripled or more in price this year. And, you know, if you have a cloud company or a SaaS company, you can kind of justify that, right? Maybe instead of looking one or two years out, now investors are looking three, four, five years out just due to you know interest rates being so low and the money being so cheap. You can kind of sort of not make the same uh, justifications for biopharma because a lot of these companies don't have any revenue. So it's all based on what they might be doing or what clinical trials might say. Um, so I've seen this go down the tubes and off the rails many times in biotech where you know this big premium gets priced in and then a clinical trial fails, and then investors have to really suddenly rethink, um, oh, man, maybe we shouldn't have given that company such a, a good valuation. So there's been a, not like almost no uh, merger and acquisition activity in biopharma this year. We saw um, Bristol-Myers Squibb acquire Myocardia for $13 billion. That was the biggest deal of the year. But they were actually dancing around each other for about 18 months. So I would put an asterisk next to, next to that. Uh, we had Gilead Sciences acquire a company called 47, that's the company's name, for $4.9 billion. So close, Dan. Um, but <laughs> that company had good data at the end of 2019, some better data in 2020 in the very beginning. So that made sense. And then we saw just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bayer acquired Ask Bio for $2 billion. But those are really the biggest deals that have happened. So it's, it's been a very slow year. So my what I'm watching is if there's a market pullback, we've seen some volatility in the last couple of weeks. You know, do, does the market start to maybe, you know, more fairly value some of these biopharmaceutical companies, these development stage companies? And if so, will bigger companies see that as a window of opportunity and maybe strike some deals? Max, is some of this just like people husbanding cash? I know that even though like we're working, things are going great at 7investing, I'm a little bit more cautious than I would normally be due to 
the situation we're in as a country, you know, political unrest, the uncertainty of the economy. If you're a company with, you know, the ability to acquire, might you be more cautious than usual? Yeah, I think so. And um, especially with some of the newer technologies like cell therapy, for instance, I mean, there's questions about how well it works. We, it's going to work eventually, but no one really is quite sure. There's a lot of uh, details we can't get into here, but um, you know, with manufacturing or the FDA's already kind of had a lot of scrutiny on some of the first movers. So, you know, if you're one of the bigger pharmaceutical companies, you might already be cautious. And then if a company you had on your short list, uh, you know, has tripled in value this year, then you might just sit on the sidelines uh, for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, I think uh, companies are going to be a little more cautious. Max, let me uh, throw you on the spot here. Do you expect a flurry of, of M&A moves once we're sort of post-pandemic and we have a little bit more certainty in the economy? That's tough to answer. I guess, you know, we have a lot of important clinical trials coming up. Um, you know, there's uh, 1,000 clinical trials in cell and gene therapy that are in phase one or two development. So depending on how those uh, go in the next year or two, that alone could spur some more M&A activity. But again, if some of these valuations are a little crazy, some of these companies have like almost no data and they're valued at like four or $5 billion. So to me, it doesn't make sense. And uh, I think investors need to be a little more careful with uh, you know, understanding what they're buying. Thank you, Max. We're going to move on to Simon's topic in a second. Uh, but Mark Hammer, a, uh, a fan of the program, a, a friend of mine, says, I want to echo Simon's comment about how awesome you are. We appreciate that. And Damon says, I'd like to talk to Simon over the phone. Is there any way I can talk to him? Well, if you're a member, uh, we do do one-on-one uh, sort of Q&As with members, uh, little 15-minute meetings. We also do uh, member-based calls where if you're a member, you get to join us. And it's such a small room. We can chat. But right now, the best way is probably to reach out to Simon on Twitter uh, or at info at 7investing.com. Simon, what's your personal Twitter if someone wants to message you? I'm at 7innovator, Damon. And it's, so thanks very much for the questions. You know, like Dan said, we can talk over Twitter if you have specific questions. If you want to talk about the previous recommendations, we found the most efficient way to do that is to have these subscriber-only calls, which we invite all of our subscribers to every month. And we look over several of our previous recommendations and also the current month's recommendations. So choose any one of those. We'll respond to any one of them that you send us. Yeah, and feel free to hit us up on Twitter at 7investing. Share your ideas. And of course, there's plenty of room in the chat here. They fixed it on recently. Stream. I can now see a whole bunch of comments in the chat as opposed to two previously. So this is working better. But Simon, you wanted to talk about long tail optionality. That's not like a cat question. That is a market question. It's not whether you're going to short cat tail. What is long tail optionality? Where are we going with this one as I get a little silly here? Well, well, the, the, these are moonshots, Dan. These are the swings for the fences that companies are taking out there. And, you know, we were talking about Max just a second ago. He's, he's a fantastic biotechnology analyst. He's also great at coming up with fantastic quotes. So, Max, I want to pass along to you that I appreciate one of your quotes you recently came up with, which is that we're always talking about how companies are missing analyst earnings estimates. But that's not really the case, right? Those earnings estimates are missing the reality of how companies are performing. And so we've got some incredibly innovative leaders out there. We've got Jeff Bezos, we've got Elon Musk, uh, we've got Larry Page, you know, and they're not managing their businesses on a quarter to quarter basis. And Dan, I know we're going to be talking a little bit about big tech earnings later in the program, but in this segment, I wanted to talk a little bit about the big swings that some of those most innovative companies are taking, are taking and what it's going to mean for investors. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's hit us with uh, what Amazon is doing in India first. 
Yeah, and so Jeff Bezos, you know, a big fan of Moonshots, AWS, Amazon Web Services was kind of one of those long tail optionality projects for them at one point. Now it's an incredibly important part of the business. The next big thing that I see that Amazon should be getting is getting into right now is their investments in India. And so what Jeff is doing is he's investing $6 billion into the, into the country because he sees this opportunity for e-commerce in India's small mom and pop retail businesses. He wants to get them set up onto the platform. But in addition to that, Dan, he's going to be putting a lot of money to work and building out the infrastructure, similar to like what we've seen in Amazon Prime here in the, in the United States. So this is a big bet with big rewards potential for Amazon in India. Now, is part of that because big players, uh, and that's really Amazon and Walmart, dominate this market, and this is sort of like the third-party marketplace in the U.S. where you want to just get as much market share as you can? Yes, this is a winner-take-most. A lot of people will point out, hey, there's regulations in India. Hey, they don't want foreign companies coming in. They want to promote local businesses. Yes, that's true, but also Amazon is very, very good at this, and they've already shown an early lead in India. Amazon and Walmart's Flipkart, 80% of 2020's e-commerce share in India right now. That is a massive number. Let's move on to another about to be massive. It's already massive, but it needs to be innovated. That's healthcare. Google is leading the way. A lot of companies are trying to figure this out, but Google is leading the way. Simon, what are they doing? So we actually talk about moonshots kind of in reference to Google, Dan, because Google has a moonshots division, right? Google X is kind of created to take these big swings. Uh, one that's within that that I'm really, really interested in is what I'm calling the unbundling of the doctor's office. Google, of course, has got so much work that they do in artificial intelligence, and the next big frontier they want to unleash that on is the healthcare industry. And so you look at some of the different segments of, of what they've been doing in healthcare. They've got a, a chronic diagnostics group. So Verily has contact lenses that can actually monitor glucose in diabetic patients. Um, they've got Onduo, which is the virtual clinic for diabetics to check in online. This is a whole bunch of data that they're getting continually from that. Fitbit an acquisition that they've been trying to close for the last year, Dan. Google really wants to have those continual updates about a patient and how their fitness is and how their health is looking. So that's kind of like a primary care doctor checking in on you. And of course, patient data, they're working with Ascension Health, Health which is an electronic healthcare record that Google is unbundling from those paper manila folders you have behind the desk at the hospital to Google just kind of packaging all this together and unleashing its AI on it. As long as they can control the data privacy and security that patients have uh, that are so important in this industry, Google is really making some big strides in healthcare right now. This is something I think investors should definitely be keeping an eye on. Simon, we're going to move on to Tesla in a second, but uh, I'm going to throw a challenge out to the seven investing uh, nation, the seven investing family that's watching. At our Twitter, that's at seven investing, share with us, uh, use the hashtag, hashtag moonshot. And share with us at Seven Investing what would be in a moonshot. Like, let's assume this is a drink, it's a shot. What is it? I feel like it's it's whiskey and Guinness, but I don't know that that would mix so well together. But I want to know. Uh, I'll put this up on our Twitter after the show. What's a moonshot? Share us your recipes. We will give a winner on the next show. Simon and I know Max wants to weigh in on this too. Tesla is, they're an innovative company. They're always doing amazing things. It's a little bit hard to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit uh, with the way Elon Musk talks. I mean, maybe he'll live on Mars next month. Maybe he'll tell us how to pronounce his kid's name. But right now, <laughs> batteries are a major part of the story. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so we talked about Battery Day a couple of months ago. We had a team call about it here, Dan. We broadcast that actually out on Restream, which was pretty fun. I watched we, it. What, 
one of the biggest topics was batteries, uh, as you would expect from something called Battery Day. But what Tesla has announced is that they're expecting a 56% reduction in the capital expenditures per kilowatt hour of production of their batteries. So no surprise, they're building gigafactories all across the entire world right now. They're going to get a bigger bang for their buck in terms of the cost of producing those batteries. And they actually believe with some changes in the manufacturing product uh, process, rather, and the design of the batteries themselves, they can actually get this down to a 69% reduction in the cost per kilowatt hour from where batteries are today. And so what does that tell us? You know, what did Moore's Law teach us about silicon conductors that's now applicable to the battery industry? This is going to open doors to a whole lot more volume and a whole lot more consumer opportunities. Uh, one of the big things could be energy storage for consumer retail electric markets all across the entire country. And let's not forget that Elon Musk himself has said that Tesla believes the energy business will ultimately be as large, if not larger, than its vehicle business. And so batteries and like power production and all of these things, we don't talk about that as much as Tesla's current vehicle lineup. But this is something that's definitely on their radar. Investors should be considering because it's going to open a lot of doors in the future. So, Simon, I'm going to come back to you in a second, but Max, you asked me before the show. You wanted to weigh in on this. So, uh, I assume you have something to say here? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to point out, you know, with with what Tesla's doing in batteries is very important. And I think because it's such a popular company and stock, not a lot of people really understand it very well. But, um, you know, like, so a lot of investors look at, well, lithium prices are this. Isn't that going to affect batteries? And the reality is it's called a lithium ion battery, but it's, like a few percent of the actual cost of the battery. It's actually like one of the least expensive things in the lithium ion battery. But, you know, the things that Tesla's doing with the manufacturing processes or how it's just completely reimagining how to make a battery. Um, I mean, it was talking about instead of, you know, putting cells into battery packs and then putting battery packs into cars, and then it's like this separate thing from the car. In the future, it's going to be able to just put the cells into the frame of the car. So it's actually going to add structural stability. Uh, and another thing that they're looking at is silicon, adding silicon to the anodes in the battery. So, um, you know, again, this is like we talk about this often in biotech, Simon. You know, there's so many things that I think people say, oh, too hard. And they throw it in that basket and they walk away or they invest and they don't really know what they're getting into. But the fact that Tesla's experimenting with silicon in batteries is very important. Uh, it could increase the lithium capacity or the ability to shuttle lithium ions in a battery by a factor of nine from what we use today. So hey, um, I, I've been saying add silicon to the anodes for no, just <laughs> just, just kidding. Dancing on this for so long. Let me throw this back to Simon. So I looked at putting solar panels in uh, at our vacation place, and besides that, my HOA doesn't allow it, which is ridiculous. One of the reasons I decided not to do it, and I could have probably fought the HOA on that, is that. Where we are, the way our electrical grid is, is I wasn't allowed to store power. So I don't live there. In theory, I could have – how much do we need legislation to catch up before sort of some of these batteries and power issues are really giving the full benefits? Yeah, I mean, like, so we went through subsidies for years, Dan. I mean, like, there was there were subsidies for the R&D work that improved the solar panel efficiency to make them more competitive with those that were coming from China as a first step. And then there was investment tax credits for companies that actually were going out there and deploying and putting those, those panels on rooftops. Now I think it's up to the states, Dan, because you've got renewable energy standards and different places around the country that are taking energy policy in their own hands and saying, hey, we really want to push for renewable energy. California now is saying all new buildings have to have solar panels on the rooftop. Hawaii, solar is already huge. We're going to see stuff like that as the efficiency gains have improved and as the tax credits have really made these more competitive. I think solar is a really big deal. Tesla was a little bit ahead 
of the market on this one. And I think that there was a lot of disappointment. We were talking about Solar City and the solar roof and the things that haven't worked out yet. But I don't think that Elon Musk is abandoning this. He's got it in his pocket. He's ready to deploy this when the market's ready. And that's going to happen on a state by state basis. And Dan, yeah, um, you know, there's some really weird, outdated uh, regulations regarding utilities where you're not allowed to generate power on site at your house or you're not allowed to have a battery. Or you can only sell so much. You got to pay this weird fee every year. So it really reduces the economics. But as Simon said, I mean, the technology is getting better. Uh, it's not quite there yet economically, but, you know, once it makes it's a no brainer, then. I think utilities will be more willing to uh, to spread that out to consumers. Yeah, yeah. And and in some smart cases, grid comes up. Oh, go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. In some cases, it's like a corkage fee. It's the penalty you pay when you bring a wine bottle to the restaurant. You yeah. know, they open it for you, and that costs twenty dollars. In other cases, and the reason that rules in place where I live is there's no way to shut off the full electrical grid. So if there's if there's a problem, they need to fix something, and I'm generating electricity. Someone could die as they work on it because there's no way to shut my house off. Some of that is how modern your electric grid is. And in Florida, we have not spent a lot on infrastructure. Simon, I'm, I'm going to get to investment talks question, but uh, I'll, I'll give you a final word here before we throw that one out there. Dan, you gave me the perfect segue, the modernizing of that infrastructure for the grid, right? I mean, Max, how many, how many power presentations do we talk about demand response or smart grid? I think it's every single one of them for the past decade. This is definitely going to be something that is required, if not super important for, for battery storage, is improving the efficiency of the distribution system. So, Simon, this is one of those questions we get asked all the time. And I think Tesla has a massive innovation advantage. But Investment Talk says, how about a little mid-cap car manufacturer in the United States, potential competitor Tesla, under the radar? Ford. Now, <laughs> Ford knows how to manufacture. They may not know how to innovate. Um, you know, the Fiesta, but they do know how to manufacture. Could traditional car companies unseat Tesla? Uh, well, that's going to be very challenging, I think, because Elon goes so far upstream of where the end user demand is, right? So you look at what Elon's working on right now. He's looking at battery storage capacity. He's looking at some basic chemistry. I mean, he's an engineer at, to his bones. And that's, that's what he wants to do is go out and innovate things. I think that's, that's why we don't really think all the time of Tesla's being a car company. Uh, look, look at all the stuff that Elon's doing between, you know, the auto industry, between going to Mars, between putting out satellite internet, uh, internet or putting chips in people's brains right now with Neuralink. I mean, he's got about a thousand projects that just he wants to make things better and more innovative. And to replicate that with any other company, I think is, is very, very challenging. I do think that the traditional auto OEMs recognize that autonomous is an opportunity that they need to invest in. Uh, but I think that it's very hard to do what Elon Musk does. And I would add that, you know, every major automaker has a full electric lineup coming in the next several years. So, but I also don't think it matters. It doesn't, it's not going to like crush Tesla out of oblivion. I think transportation is just going electric. So everyone's going to do that. And it almost doesn't matter in terms of like competition to Tesla. What's going to matter is how cheaply people can make those cars. And so far, no one's really done that for like a mass market, you know, electric vehicle. So we're going to talk a little bit about it being, it's the second of the month, so our picks came out on Sunday. But before we do that, I want to throw out a bit of a curveball here to you guys. Vehicle ownership. So right now, I own three cars. That is one more car than I have people who drive in my house. So that's not <laughs> great. Uh, but my intent is to own two cars. I'll, I'll take care of that at some point. My son will eventually get his license. But do you think individual ownership of cars is going to be how it works in the future? Or it's going to be more of a car-on-demand system where you're paying a subscription, you can go get a car as you need it? Uh, Simon, because I'm putting you on the spot, I'll let you go first here. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the big opportunity for this is going to be the, the things that we're using human beings to do the labor component of delivering things right now. Right. So when you order uh, food for takeout, it's going to be delivered, uh, whether by Uber or, or someone else in, in a vehicle that has no driver and you punch in a code to get your food out of it, you know, or, or anything else that, you know, taxi networks or anything else like that, where the labor component can be saved by investing in an R&D um, autonomous system. That's going to be the first wave of what we see. So I think that, yeah, Dan, you know, the people that are right now buying vehicles to do tasks that they aren't enjoying, it's just a hassle to pick up food or go to the grocery store or whatever else you're using your car for right now. Um, I think that that segment alone is going to be fewer vehicles sold in the future. Yes. Max, your thoughts here. I kind of disagree. I think it's going to take way longer than anyone thinks for that to happen. And it may be in cities where there's some density benefits. You can, you know, oh, I'm going to go pick up the car and go see someone uptown. But I think for most people, they're still going to want to own a car. Maybe less cars. Yeah, sure. Like, Dan, come on, three cars. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's going to take a while, I guess is what I'm saying. So let me explain the three cars and then give my thoughts here. I held on to my Mini Cooper thinking it would be a perfect car for my son uh, because it's it's a big steel, you know, it's little, but it's a steel box and it's really safe. Uh, that being said, he made no move to get his license. I didn't use the car enough and all sorts of things went wrong with it and some squirrels moved in and it's a big, it's a big, big problem. So I have to offload that car at some point. I actually think you're going to see New York City within the decade close itself to cars and move to that type of model. I also think you're going to see the type of automation Simon was talking about. That's going to happen first at closed loop places. Disney World, I think is a big place you might see that. I don't think within five years, you're going to have a driverless Uber pick up your food. I don't think regular Uber with people does all that well uh, in terms of it. So I don't think we're there yet in terms, but I do think we are going to start to see it first as a bit of a novelty, then as, hey, it's New York City, there's no place to move. What if we put all the cars at the end of the subway uh, and made it so you could subscribe to a service so you could go visit your friends who live in New York and New Jersey. I think that's what's going to happen. But Simon, we alluded to this a little bit before. You're the CEO of 7investing. And I thought it was a little bit weird because the first of the month happened on a Sunday. And what happens? A flurry of activity around our picks. Why 7 picks? What do we do? What are you supposed to do with that information? Why should people join us? I'll give you the floor here. Yeah, thanks very much, Dan. And and this is a great question we run into all the time of, you know, isn't seven picks a little much per month? Don't you just want to be picking one company? And uh, no, we don't actually agree with that. We think that we really want all of our advisors to answer the same question, which is what's your very best idea this month? Dan Klein, what's your best idea? Max Chatsko, what's your best idea? For all six of us on the team, plus a team wreck every month right now, um, we're giving you each of our individual best ideas. And of course, each of us is looking at different things in the market. And I think that this is kind of framing the question that was posed of which is the right pick for me? Which one should I associate with? Which one should I buy if I only want to buy one of these picks? We, we kind of give you the handoff. You know, we pass the baton to you on that to make the decision yourself because investing is such a personal thing. We're not managing anybody's money. We're not saying it has to be this way or a certain different way. Uh, but we've got some very different styles that apply to different risk levels, different types of industries, different investing styles themselves, Dan. And that's kind of why we started the company was to pre present that full buffet of options for people to choose from. Yeah. And let me give a little a little sort of uh, color on this. So Max's pick this month is in biotechnology. We rated it as very high risk. I'd never heard of it before he pitched it. It's a growth company. It's also a small cap. Simon's picks enterprise software. It's high risk, not very high risk. It's a growth company and it's a large cap. My pick is retail. You're not going to see a lot of people picking retail. Moderate risk, 
it's a value company and it's a mid cap. We are all over the board in terms of uh, you know what types of stocks we're picking and how do you use this? I often liken it to if you like a reviewer. So if you know this guy, every album he likes, I also like, well, maybe you should listen to albums that he likes. So if you're looking at Simon's picks and you go, okay, Simon really thinks like I do. He's just validating me on some of these companies I've looked at. Well, you probably want to follow Simon, but you might want a dash of Austin Lieberman's picks, you know, to sort of like spice up your portfolio, to have a little bit more risk. So it's really, and something we do for members, we're going to start doing when we launch our advisor blog, is tell you different baskets, different ways you could sort of use our picks, balance our picks. Uh, I'll throw out one of the questions people ask all the time before we move on to our finisher. Simon, when do you buy? So we put the pick recommendation out. Do I wait? Do I buy some now? Do I buy over the course of a few weeks? What's your normal approach to it? Well, for us, Dan, we're actually buying at the the close of the first market trading day after the recommendations. So like you said, we published all seven of our new recommendations yesterday on Sunday the 1st. Uh, today is the 2nd, which is a Monday, which is a trading day. We want to get everybody a chance to get into those, those recommendations before we do. Uh, so we're actually not buying until the close of the very first market day. We'll be making our purchases at the end of the day. And our scorecard, 7investing.com slash recommendations, reflects the actual buy price that we have of those positions. So we're transparently reporting every single pick we've ever made and the consolidated return is what we, re we report out there. And just one other thing you said too, Dan, um, we're trying to knock down the wall between published report and research process. And so we do publish our reports on the first of the month, but then on the eighth of the month, we also publish our team's conversation where we're talking about each one of the picks. And that's objective, right, Dan? We've kind of gone back and forth on some of these ideas. Yeah, we don't out the risks. Yeah, we don't agree with everything. And you'll, you'll actually see the objective feedback from everyone on the team talking to each other about the ideas. I think that makes everybody better investors. It's not just a promotion. We're not just hoorahing for all of our picks every month. Uh, these are our very best ideas, and we're very proud of them. But we also want you to see objectively what we think about every one of them. Yeah, and you get to see sort of the what the objections would be. So like I... The day we taped that, I had laser eye surgery. So we actually taped mine a little bit in advance. And I threw my pick out there. And it was maybe a company not everyone had heard of. And I went through it and I explained my case. And I, I made a pretty strong case. But there were questions. There are risks involved. There are just even a, a sort of an attempt to understand a little bit, especially in Max's segment, like, okay, well, what are the things preventing this company from succeeding or failing? So we absolutely suggest you check us out at 7investing.com slash subscribe, where you can get access to all of our picks for forever, but also the new ones for November. But guys, now it is time to close the show. It's time to hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, if you can share the graphic, if you can't let us know, we're having some technical problems, but there we go. Which company had the most encouraging earnings? Uh, Apple, 10.2%. Google, 33.1%. Facebook, 16.9%. Amazon, 39.8%. Guys, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to say it was Apple. And I think the reason for it is a lot of people went, oh my God, they lost 20% of iPhone sales. Yeah, but the new iPhone came out in the next quarter. So that means nothing. What they did in service revenue and diversifying their business is really important. And I'm not saying all the others, Amazon especially, weren't impressive. But did you expect anything less from Amazon? I wasn't 100% sure Apple would be able to continue to post massive growth in service and growing its other businesses. So I really think it's the most surprising. It's the most exciting. Simon, your thoughts here. Uh, all, all of these companies are amazing, Dan. It's hard to pick any one of them. I guess I picked Amazon because $100 billion quarter is insane in my, in my mind. This is just accelerating the trend to e-commerce even more. And this is a company to benefit from it. 
Max, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are the biggest companies in the world for a reason. And uh, the fact that they're so large and they're still growing at, you know, these double digit growth clips. I mean, how do you bet against that? Yeah, and it's one of the things. So you're not necessarily going to see us pick companies that are this big because you might. But it's also important to remember that there are always companies. They're just good companies. You, you look at these four, and they might not be the hottest things because you know they're not in the massive growth phase of their business, but they're still really good businesses. That being said, Apple, where is my iPhone? I ordered the new iPhone. It's not coming to like the 15th. You got to step this up. I know it's a pandemic. I don't care. Get me the new iPhone. Guys, that finishes up today's episode of 7 Investing Now. If you have questions for us or just want to say hello, you can send us an email at info at seveninvesting.com. That is the number seveninvesting.com. But here's a secret. If you write out seven, it also works. That's not true on Twitter. Our Twitter is at the number seven investing. We don't own, I think we don't own, at written out seven investing. So if you want to hit us up there, we would like, and of course, remember, I'm going to post it in a second. What ingredients go in a moonshot? <laughs> we are looking forward to seeing that. Max, Simon, I'll see you on the other side. Thanks, Dan. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. Views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.